My guest today is Anders Hansen. Anders is a assistant professor of bioengineering at MIT. His group studies the interplay between genome organization and regulation of gene expression in mammals. His group has a particular interest in developing new experimental and computational tools to answer these questions. Anders, it's great to have you on today. Thanks so much for having me. So to start with some motivation, um, at a high level, could you explain why it is important to understand three-dimensional genome organization to understand mammalian gene regulation? Yeah, so I think I think the, the central dilemma that the genome faces is that on the one hand, you have this very long genome, it's about two meters long in a, in a mammalian cell that has to be compacted five, six orders of magnitude to fit inside the nucleus and it has to be protected from damage by various proteins. So you have this very sensitive structure, the genome, that needs to be compacted and, and protected. So that's on the one hand. And then on the other hand, you need it to be accessible for transcription, for replication, and for a whole of other processes. And so I think the central challenge in, in genome organization is to organize the genome in such a way that it fits inside the nucleus and is protected, but at the same time for it to be accessible to the various processes such as transcription and, 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 and replication. So in terms of actually studying genome organization, what are the tools available to, to study it? Yeah, yeah, I think we can roughly divide the tools into three categories. So there's um, genomics types approaches such as HiC, there's fixed cell imaging approaches uh, such as DNA fish, and then there's live cell imaging approaches or at least those are perhaps the three most popular today. So if we start with the genomics methods, uh, there was really a revolution with the development of proximity ligation assays and 3C from uh, Job Decker and Nancy Kleckner almost uh, two decades ago now. And so the basic way that these assays work is that you use a restriction enzyme or nuclease to cut up the genome, and then you ligate it back together and then the assumption is that if two loci are closed in 3D space, they're more likely to ligate back together. And then in the very early days, you would look at uh, ligation frequency using PCR. But now, of course, we can use high throughput sequencing. Uh, and, and the techniques now are called high C. So the first was 3C, then there was 4C, 5C, and, and high C. And you can get these exquisite maps of uh, 3D genome structure across the whole genome. And, um, over the last 10 years, the sequencing has become more and more accessible. Uh, we've sequenced more and more deeply and discovered more, more and more things uh, related to genome organization. And then uh, DNA fish is a, is, a, is a classic technique where you, you fix cells, you basically boil them in formamide to separate the two strands of the DNA, hybridize in fluorescent probes, and then you can see specific loci. And the advantage of DNA fish is that you can pick which locus you want to see, and you can see where it is relevant in relationship to other nuclear structures. And so traditional DNA fish approaches allowed us to see one or two loci, but now there are these tiling and super resolution approaches that allow us to really tile a whole, a whole chromosome. And then, there, then uh, the third category would say are live cell imaging methods. Uh, and here typically either you label a protein and RNA or DNA of interest, and then you look at its dynamics and mobility uh, inside of living cells. So at a high level, what sort of biological questions can these techniques answer? Yeah, so I would say 3D genome organization, I'd argue is relevant to more or less all processes in the nucleus. So it's relevant to replication. For example, there's some evidence that uh, certain domains um, 
replication timing that coincides with certain domain structures in the 3D genome. It's relevant to DNA repair, for example. Uh, personally, uh, one of my primary interests is the regulation of transcription. And, and here, I think 3D genome organization is particularly important because the key uh, units of gene regulation in mammals are enhancers. Uh, enhancers are non-coding sequences that bind transcription factors and then regulate target genes, often across very long distances. So some enhancers are 10, 20 kilobases away, but you have some enhancers that are hundreds of kilobases, um, even, uh, even megabases away from their target genes. And so somehow they have to find the right gene in 3D space and regulate it. And there are a lot of diseases where you have aberrant enhancer uh, gene interactions that then cause, for example, oncogene overexpression in cancer. So we know that this is really important, but how uh, an enhancer somehow navigates 1.7 megabase in the case of the MIG enhancer and T cells to find the MIG gene, but not find some of the, the other genes that it could find is, is really a central mystery. And I think 3D genome organization is key to understanding how that works. Right, right. So your group does a lot of work with live cell imaging. Um, what are some of the main, I guess, technical challenges with this technique and how has your group tackled solving some of these challenges? Yeah, I, I, I sort of, I sort of maybe divide techniques into two. So you have the genomics type techniques and those have been incredibly powerful and they sort of laid out most of the structures we know about 3D genome organization. I, I would categorize them a little bit like we, we learn a little bit about everything. Um, and then another type of techniques where uh, are techniques where I would say we learn a lot about one, one thing. And so the live cell imaging techniques tend to fall in this bucket. And they are all based on and informed by the genomics techniques. So for example, if you want to understand uh, how an enhancer uh, communicates with a gene, you could fluorescently tag the enhancer and the gene, and then try to look at their interactions uh, in live cells using, using live cell imaging. So, so that could get at some of the dynamical aspects that are, are challenging to get at in the genomics types approaches where you have to sort of break open the cells to see what's inside. So you only allow a single snapshot. So um, kind of now getting into the biology, um, I was hoping we could just first at a very high level understand, you know, what are the main topological features of the genome? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And, and actually it sort of follows uh, the, the, our evolution of understanding to some extent follows the evolution of the, the methodologies available to the, the field. So I think uh, some of the first discoveries uh, were on chromosome territories. And so th here the finding was that some chromosomes are more likely to be close to each other in the cell uh, than what you would expect by chance. So chromosome positioning inside the nucleus is non-random. And then, um, so that's you know, at the whole chromosome level. Then zooming in a little bit more, uh, the, 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 the original uh, 2009 IC paper um, discovered uh, what's now called A and B compartments. And, and roughly speaking, um, uh, the, you can divide the genome into active euchromatin and inactive heterochromatin. Um, and the finding was that active chromatin tends to interact with active chromatin, both in trichromosomally and interchromosomally, and inactive chromatin tends to interact with inactive chromatin. And so these are large scale um, uh, like chromatin interactions that are called compartments. 
And if you look at these maps that come out of high speed, these contact maps, you get a very characteristic uh, checkerboard pattern. Uh, checkerboard pattern. And then zooming in a little bit more, uh, you, uh, and this was uh, from the 2012 papers, uh, um, topologically associating domains or tabs were discovered. And so they are often, though not always, a little bit smaller than, uh, uh, than uh, these, these compartments. And these are local domains. So TADs don't have inter or intra-chromosomal interactions. They, uh, they are just one local domain, and they're characterized by the fact that two loci inside the same TAD interact more frequently uh, than two equidistant loci between different TADs. Um, and, so, and so then a little bit later, uh, people saw these dots in the high C maps, and these are interpreted as chromatin loops. And so, so that's sort of the next level of detail. And then more recently, with new variants of HiC, uh, such as microC, it's been possible to see even more fine-scale structures and, and very, very small domains, even, even within the, uh, the tags. So um, it's almost like a fractal structure with uh, a, a domain organization at, at multiple scales. So all these kind of features you described, um, how do they maybe vary with genome complexity. So for instance, do you see different topological features between you know, bacteria versus eukaryotes? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. And I, I'd say um, it, we, uh, our understanding is of genome organization is probably best in mammals, which is rare because normally we first understand how things work in yeast, then in worms and flies, and then uh, at the end in mammals. But, but, uh, but it seems to be best in mammals and I think at the level of these topologically associating domains and chromatin loops, and I should say these are um, especially thought to be important for gene regulation because oftentimes enhancers and genes communicate better inside the same tab than uh, and are insulated from each other between different tabs. Uh, these structures seem to be absolutely dependent on CPCF and cohesin. So CPCF is a DNA binding protein that binds specific sites. And cohesin is a multi-subunit multi complex, perhaps ring shape, that can topologically embrace the DNA. And it's thought that it can extrude these loops. And so it'll land on DNA, extrude loops across hundreds of kilobases until it's stopped by CDCF, and then hold together one of these domains. Um, and and I, I bring that up because um, a lot of uh, all mammalian uh, organisms have CDCF. But for example, yeast does not have CDCF. And so you don't see uh, those types of um, uh, loop type domains uh, as clearly in, in yeast. Um, I think some worms have CDCF, but the most studied worm C. elegans does not. And so how chromosome organization is organized in worms is, is, is not as clear. And uh, flies, Drosophila, have CDCF, but uh, fly CDCF is quite different from mammalian CDCF, and there seems to be multiple redundant uh, insulator proteins, such that whereas CDCF is the key protein in mammals, there are multiple redundant proteins in flies. And so it's actually been, um, I think, uh, I'm a little bit less familiar with the fly literature, but it's actually been quite difficult to understand the organization there. But we know that in mammals, if you get rid of cohesin, all tads and loop, loop domains disappear. And if you get rid of CDCF, almost all of them disappear. So, um, there seems to be less redundancy and it really seems to be organized by, by CDCF and, 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 and 
And, and I think in zebrafish, it's, it's very similar to, to mammals as well. So these loops you're referring to, what's, I guess, like the high level mechanism by which they form and how is live cell imaging kind of uh, played a role in that? Yeah. So I actually, I think, I think so far that uh, uh, the, the key mechanism seems to be loop extrusion. And so far, I think maybe there hasn't been as much uh, uh, evidence or, or, uh, from live cell imaging as from in vitro studies and, and from, from, uh, from IC. Um, and so, yeah, so loop extrusion, it was a very uh, interesting, but slightly, <laughs> it was thought to be slightly provocative hypothesis when it was proposed um, uh, in, in 2015 and, and 16. And so I think uh, the, the idea is that cohesin will, um, will land on DNA and it will extrude loops. So if you imagine a ring landing on a, on a long string, it will sort of extrude a loop through the ring structure and then it'll, it'll pull together DNA on the other side of the loop. Um, and, and it'll continue to do this until it, it meets a stop signal. And in, in mammals, at least, it seems like the, the, the most important stop signal is CBCF sites. And, and, one, and, and I think one of the, 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 the pieces of evidence that, that led to this model was a very peculiar observation so there, in, in a 2014 paper from uh, Brown and Huntley et al., where they did very, very, very high resolution IC, they found 10,000 loops in the human genome. And one thing that was very mysterious was that although they found that almost all of these loops were anchored by CDCF, so you need, uh, you know, you need two anchors for a loop, um, CDCF, uh, the DNA binding side, is not a palindrome, it's directional. And so it can either be pointing forwards or backwards. And what they found was that almost all of the loops are uh, between two CDCF sites that point in the same direction, in the convergent direction. And, and this is really baffling, right? Because you have two DNA sites that in some cases are a million base pairs away. And somehow, uh, whatever mechanism forms these loops is sensitive to whether it's pointing in one way or the other. And so the, the, the least, uh, the, the most obvious way where you could form loops, right? It would be if you have, like, let's say you have two CDCF sites and these sites are sticky, you have random chromosome diffusion. Once they meet each other, they stick. Now you have a loop. So, so that, that's the, the simplest way you could form loops perhaps, but that, that could not explain the orientation because they are so far away, uh, there would be no way for, um, for the stickiness to be sensitive to the CDCF orientation. So you needed some sort of directional mechanism that would be sensitive to the CBCF orientation. And, and I think this, and including some, some, um, some other pieces of evidence were, 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 were some of the key insights that led to the extrusion model, because now if cohesin extrudes, once it meets CBCF, it'll meet CBCF from one side. And if the binding side is in the convergent orientation, it'll meet the end terminus of CDCF first. And so cohesin seems to have an ability to distinguish whether it meets the N-terminal or C-terminal side of CDCF. And if it meets the C-terminal side, it extrudes past and doesn't stop. And only if it meets the N-terminal side of CDCF will it stop. Cool, cool. So you've also shown that um, RNA binding regions are important for CTCF function. I was wondering if you could talk about that a little more and also why you think uh, it could be an important insight for the field. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I think that, that, that fits in, in nicely here because so 
the extrusion model, and I should say uh, really beautiful work from several labs have now directly observed loop extrusion in vitro. And so they, they took fluorescently labeled DNA in vitro, purified cohesin or condensin proteins, and directly observed loop extrusion in vitro. So I think now that there's pretty strong evidence, at least in vitro, loop extrusion can occur. But we still need a mechanistic explanation for why cohesin is somehow sensitive to the orientation of the CPC at finding site. You know, if it was just random stickiness, uh, it's not obvious why it couldn't extrude a little bit past the CBCF site and then interact with the N-terminus on the other side. And so I think several groups, including us, uh, have, have been interested in this and have basically taken the approach of let's chop up the CBCF protein, and let's get rid of various domains, and let's see what happens. And so um, previous work from, um, from Danny Reinberg's lab had had suggested that there was an RNA binding region in CBCF, just C-terminal to the sync finger domain that reduces the DNA binding. And, and we, we did some, um, uh, we did some, uh, we previously found that CBCF forms these clusters inside the cell where you have tens of CBCF proteins that come together and we were curious about how might they form. And so we, we did a biochemical approach where we had two different epitope labels on the CBCF, on the CBCF and then we, co-immunoprecipitated them with each other to see if they interacted. And then we tried to do various perturbations to understand how they interacted. And we found that the interaction was sensitive to, to RNA. Uh, that is to say, if we depleted RNA using RNA treatment, they no longer interacted. And so that really got us reading those, uh, those two, that, that 2014 Danny Reinberg paper where they identified this, CD, this RNA binding region in CBCF. And then of course, if, uh, the, the, the obvious experiment is to try to knock it out and see if, um, if clustering is affected. And, and that's indeed, uh, indeed uh, what we saw. So we believe that this region mediates CBCF cell attraction. Um, when we deleted it, the cells also got very, very sick. Uh, so the, the doubling time almost doubled. So it appears to be physiologically very important. And so, you know, CBCF, one of the key roles is forming these loops. We have a mutant that makes the cells very sick. And so, you know, it's not a big leap to then try to do a um, high C or micro C experiment to see if genome organization was affected. And, and, it, and indeed uh, it was. We saw about a third, depends a little bit on how we set the threshold, about a third of all the chromosome loops uh, are lost when we get rid of this RNA binding region. And then independently, Danny Reinberg's lab identified uh, two more uh, partially redundant RNA binding regions in CBCF. And they also see, uh, see, see loss of looping. And, um, and so, so it appears, so you know, it's not direct evidence that RNA mediates these looping interactions, but at least we can say when we knock out the domain that seems to be responsible for, for RNA interactions, uh, we see loss of these loops. And, and one way that I think about it is if there is a size mismatch. So cohesin is gigantic. It's about 50 or 60 nanometers, and it has the ability to extrude loops at an amazing pace. Estimates uh, are around 30 to 60 kilobases per minute. So, you know, tens of thousands of base pairs per minute. So you have something gigantic that's moving extremely fast. And on the other hand, CBCF is tiny. Uh, it's probably three to five nanometers or so. And so, you have a system where you have something that's gigantic and moving at an incredible pace. 
And somehow it's exquisitely sensitive to the presence of something comparatively tiny that has the ability to block it. And so at a very simplistic level, one way perhaps of thinking about this is that you need CDCF to bulk up to be better at blocking cohesion extrusion. And one way of doing that could be binding RNA and perhaps uh, also clustering of CDCF. I should say that is very speculative and that's the model that we have right now, but that's at least one way I think about it. And there was also, um, there's also other work, um, uh, uh, very nice work from Victor Lubankov and Elfesh Nora and, and co-workers that, that showed that not only are these, uh, these RNA interacting domains important, there's also uh, uh, the N-terminal domain of CDCF is also important. So it, it appears to be a multi-step interaction between CDCF and cohesion. I think we're only beginning to try to understand it. So um, kind of switching gears a bit to uh, one of the podcast. Um, so I know you did your undergrad and master's in, in chemistry. How has a background in chemistry influenced how you approach tackling biological problems? Yeah, if I could go back, I probably wouldn't study chemistry. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I was, I was, a, I, I, I specialized in synthetic organic chemistry. Um, so I think chemistry is sort of the central science, right? It's, uh, it has, it interacts with, uh, with biology, but also, also with, with physics and math. And I think it gives you a very molecular perspective, right? You think about how do atoms interact and how do molecules interact. Um, I, I was really drawn to organic chemistry because I think as a field, it, it's, it's, it's beautiful. You just have to learn a few basic principles and then you can basically rationalize how all organic molecules interact. So I, I found that uh, just fascinating and really beautiful. When I then got into the lab, I, I found that there was a lot of the research questions were a little bit focused on let's synthesize a complicated molecule to, to, as a proof of concept, or let's try to make this, this uh, reaction a little bit more efficient. And so, um, and this is obviously my own very biased and subjective view, but, but I, I found it wasn't so much going after like the very big fundamental questions where I felt like in biology, there are so many big fundamental questions. Like for example, enhancers, 90% of disease associated genetic variants map to enhancers. And we still don't have a good understanding of how enhancers uh, interact with and regulate their target genes. So I think some of those very, very fundamental and central questions in biology uh, really appealed to me. And so I sort of made a switch and I suppose the mindset has carried over a little bit, but there wasn't a lot of the practical knowledge, I would say, from synthetic organic chemistry that I've been able to use subsequently. Okay. Okay. So uh, last question. Um, so from a philosophical perspective, why do you think it's uh, important to kind of do de novo design of genomes to understanding genome organization? And I guess more generally, do you think this feedback loop between science and engineering is important for making progress in science. Yeah, okay, yeah. So I, now I'd like to slightly retract my previous statement because I think that is that is one area where I think the chemistry mindset uh, comes in. So in, in synthetic organic chemistry, the, you don't do control experiments because you only have two or three things and you kind of know how they work and there's no need for them. And, and in biology, right, it's all about the control experiments and data interpretation is so hard. And so I think that 
the engineering mindset and perhaps also the chemistry mindset is to let's start with the simplest possible scenario and then build up complexity. So most, uh, most studies we've done and that I think the field of 3D genome organization has done, I'd characterize as top-down. You take a very, very interesting, but also very complicated biological system. You try to tease it apart and try to understand how it works. And, and, and that's tried and true and very powerful, of course. But one of the issues is that biology is optimized for, um, for robustness. Robustness tends to involve redundancy and redundancy makes our lives as researchers very, very difficult, right? Because we might knock out something and nothing happens, not because it's not important, but because they are redundant and compensatory uh, elements that sort of hide the phenotype we would otherwise have seen. And so for this reason, a, a nascent uh, research program in the lab is to try to say, what if we can just go bottom up? Let's try to find uh, regions uh, where there's relatively little, uh, little structure, and let's try to build it up one step at a time to, to try to understand um, complexity uh, bottom up and, and you know, try to get at the mechanistic principles in a, in a system where the only components are the ones that we have uh, introduced to the extent that that's possible with biological systems. Right, makes total sense. Okay, Anders, thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you.